Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's Washington National Tax International Tax Practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. Today, we'll be exploring select aspects of the final foreign tax credit regulations, a belated Festivus gift we received from the government just before the new year. For this discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, Kevin Brogan and Seth Green. Kevin is a principal in the WNT International Tax Practice and one of the firm's deep thinkers in all things foreign tax credits. Seth is a principal and co-head of KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. Many, many moons ago, when the Republic was still in its infancy, Seth was an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. Kevin, welcome to the podcast, and Seth, welcome back. Thank you, Gary. Thanks, Gary. So the final foreign tax credit regulations were released on December 28th, 2021. These regulations finalize most aspects of the proposed FTC regulations issued in November 2020 with minor modifications. These rules are generally perspective for tax years beginning on or after December 28, 2021. So they're effective right now for calendar year taxpayers. There's a lot in here to unpack. Sadly, though, we won't have time to discuss everything in this reg package today. Instead, we'll generally focus on the topics we expect to be the most germane to you, our listeners. Let's start by talking about the rules for allocating and apportioning foreign taxes, which are relevant for many purposes in the code, including assigning taxes to Section 904 baskets, associating taxes with sub-F and guilty to be deemed paid under Section 960, and disallowing foreign tax credits under 245 Cap AD. The rules for allocating and apportioning taxes are predominantly contained within 861-20, which at a very high level operates by first assigning so-called foreign gross income to statutory and residual groupings and then allocating the foreign taxes associated with that foreign gross income to those same groupings. The final regulations contain specific rules relating to dispositions of stock, certain partnership transactions, such as the sale of a partnership interest and distributions from a partnership, and foreign taxes imposed on disregarded payments. Seth, the regulations largely finalized what was in the 2020 regulations, but was there anything you found particularly noteworthy in the final regs? You know, as you say, they they did mostly finalize what they had proposed. So I'd say if there's something noteworthy, it's more what they didn't do, the changes they didn't make, the comments they didn't accept. So, for example, they do a lot as a kind of fallback by allocating gain with respect to stock using the the same allocation keys that we use for interest allocation under 861-9. In particular, one of the places they do that is if you recover PTEP basis and a taxable sale of stock which is to be contrasted with their rule of if you recover PTEP basis through a distribution of PTEP, in which case they track the tax to the category of PTEP that's being distributed. It's really, to my mind, hard to understand why they wouldn't simply use the same rules for recovering PTEP basis in a sale as in a distribution. 
you'd only have to hypothesize a distribution and ask where it would have come from. But they suggested it would have been administratively um, too difficult to do that, despite the fact that, you know, when it comes to tracking PTEP and giving us 17 categories for PTEP distributions, they're perfectly happy for, for that level of complexity to exist. And, and this matters because it's the difference between forward-looking and backward-looking. PTEP is a backward-looking concept, and we are really being taxed when you recognize foreign gain that corresponds to PTEP basis. You really are being taxed on those past earnings, whereas 861-9, by looking at what assets you have today, is really telling you more about the gain you might recognize in the future. And if there's been a change there, that can be very significant. Perhaps the most extreme version is if your PTEP basis is attributable to 965 inclusions from a 1050 company, a so-called SFC rather than a CFC. In, in that circumstance, the forward-looking approach is likely to tell you that your gain is associated with the 245 cap A basket and thus utterly disallowed, as opposed to telling you that it's a 965 gain where perhaps a haircut might apply, but nevertheless, a credit would be available. So these are pretty high stakes in at least some circumstances, and it's hard for me to see why they necessarily rejected those comments. Thanks, Seth. As every investor is well aware, past performance does not guarantee future results. Likewise, as your example illustrates, past PTEP may not align with future earnings. In any case, that's a great segue into the disallowance provisions of section 245 cap ad the regulations under 245 cap ad are also finalized in this package and unlike the general perspective date of the regulations are retroactive to tax years beginning after december 31st 2019 so long as such year ends on or after november 2nd 2020. these regulations differ significantly in terminology from the proposed regs but their effect appears substantially the same. The rules disallow a credit or deduction for any tax paid by a domestic or foreign corporation attributable to so-called Section 245 Cap AD income, or any tax paid by a domestic corporation attributable to non-inclusion income. I won't get into the precise definitions of these terms, but I would point out that these rules can disallow not only foreign taxes paid with respect to dividends, that are eligible for the 245 cap a drd that is what's included in the 245 cap a d income concept but also for instance foreign taxes paid on foreign dividends that are disregarded distributions or remittances made by a taxable unit of a domestic corporation if the taxable unit itself owns cfc stock characterized in the 245 cap a subgroup also, it can disallow foreign taxes on distributions made by a CFC that are dividends for foreign tax purposes, but a return of capital for U.S. tax purposes to the extent the CFC stock is characterized in the 245 Cap A subgroup. And also it can disallow foreign taxes on dispositions of CFC stock that result in a recovery of basis for U.S. tax purposes again to the extent the CFC stock is characterized in the 245 cap a subgroup. Indeed, this is the rule that Seth's example involving the sale of the stock of a 1050 company with 965 PTEP was meant to illustrate. Kevin, was there anything 
else in the 245 Cap A regulations that you found noteworthy? Yes, Gary, thank you. I think I would make a couple points about the 245 Cap A D regulations. The first is just a pretty basic application of the reg that you already alluded to, but really recommend taxpayers whenever an amount is going to be paid that is foreign gross income under foreign law, taxpayers really think about whether or not this payment could be within the scope of these regulations. I think it's intuitive to all taxpayers that where a dividend is paid for which you get a dividends received deduction under 245 cap A, that any associated withholding tax would be disallowed. But the breadth of transactions captured here, as you mentioned, return of capital transactions. So transactions where there's no US taxable income whatsoever, taxpayers need to keep in mind that portion of any credits, withholding credits that might be paid if this distribution is recognized as a dividend for foreign law might also lose their credibility just because the way the rules work, they look at how the stock is characterized for interest expense purposes in which taxpayers can end up having a 245 cap A subgroup whenever that CFC has income that year that ultimately does not become a guilty inclusion because it was either reduced by QBI or tested losses. So I think the need to think about every distribution from a CFC in terms of being within the scope of this rule is something that I think been paid less attention to in the past and something we're all going to have to be on the lookout for. The other surprising point I would make in the regs is just the sting of the anti-abuse rule uh, included. So first of all, I want to point out the anti-abuse rule is one of those, whether the transaction has a principal purpose of avoiding 245 cap A rather than whether it's the principal purpose. So whenever you make a distribution, even if it was done for foreign law convenience, taxpayers are going to have to stop and take a pause as to whether the avoidance of 245 cap AD could be considered a principal purpose of the transaction. And the reason why is whenever this anti-abuse rule comes into play, any foreign taxes paid in connection with the transaction that the IRS or Treasury believe was structured to avoid the purposes of these regulations, every single dollar of tax is disallowed. And the regulations themselves include an example that illustrate the sting here. Without getting into the details, they involve a transaction where were a dividend actually paid that could be subject to the regulations, only half of the foreign taxes would have been disallowed. But because the transaction was felt to be within the scope of the anti-abuse rules, 100% of those foreign tax credits were disallowed. So a, a very painful result if you are caught by this rule. And that, Kevin, that example was changed from the proposed regs. The proposed regs, the example, would have actually only disallowed half of the taxes consistent with an actual distribution. The language itself of the anti-abuse rule hasn't changed, but I think the important thing to know, consistent with what you just said, is that there is no appropriate adjustments will be made language. I think the IRS and Treasury view this as potentially a cudgel. If you have a bad principal purpose, you can lose 100% of your taxes, not just the taxes you would have lost if you had actually done a non-principal purpose transaction. Moving on. The final regs provide that in general, a foreign income tax liability reduced by reason of a refundable or transferable tax credit is not treated as an amount of foreign tax paid for purposes of Section 901. 
Kevin, can you tell us a little more about this rule and what kind of fact pattern this is relevant to? Sure. Let's start off talking about what's potentially at stake here. So let's say we have a foreign tax of 100 that would otherwise be due, and the taxpayer has able to satisfy its foreign tax liability through a foreign credit. There's been a long-standing debate as to when these type of credits are treated as a reduction in foreign taxes paid versus an income item. So under the one view, if you treated the use of the tax credit as an addition to gross income, that $100 of foreign taxes would remain treated as paid by you, the taxpayer, and accreditable to fully reduce your U.S. tax liability dollar for dollar. If the foreign tax credit was instead viewed as a reduction to your foreign taxes paid, so on our facts, we have 100 of what would have been foreign liability and 100 of a credit, the taxpayer would end up with zero credits to offset its U.S. tax liability, and so could find itself in a position where it ends up paying quite a bit of residual tax on foreign source income. So in finalizing these regs, Treasury drew a line in the sand. These grants are, or credits are only treated as income instead of a reduction in your foreign taxes paid, where you have a credit that is refundable in, but to the taxpayer in whole at its election. So you could use it to satisfy your foreign tax liability, but you must have the right to get the entire amount of the credit in cash should you so choose. So to some extent, this rule really doesn't draw a distinction based on overall economics. Most taxpayers won't care whether or not they got the $100 in cash and then turned around and paid $100 of taxes versus whether or not they only received a payment of cash in respect of the credit to the extent it exceeded their foreign tax liability. Because of the harshness of this rule, taxpayers will lose the ability to credit a lot of their foreign source income potentially. And I think it's to be determined at this point whether or not foreign governments will restructure the administrability of their credits so that a taxpayer could receive the credit in whole and therefore the taxpayer is not treated as having a significantly reduced payment of foreign taxes. Will we see such changes? I think it remains to be seen, but I just want to make a note for you, Gary, and for our audience that this rule is not too dissimilar to the rule uh, put forth in the BEPS Pillar 2 model rules, where you're also doing ETR testing to see if a taxpayer is subject to additional imputed tax like the guilty system. So in that rate, I think the consequences of credits that are not refundable in whole could have big impacts worldwide on taxpayers, even outside the U.S. Thanks, Kevin. Let's move on to the main course of today's discussion, the creditability of foreign taxes. The changes to creditable foreign taxes under sections 901 and 903 were first included in the 2020 proposed regs and were meant to address the government's concern about the proliferation of novel and extraterritorial foreign taxes. These changes reflect the government's view that the U.S. should not subsidize foreign jurisdictions that exercise their taxing rights in a manner that diverge in significant respects from traditional norms of international taxing jurisdiction as reflected in the Internal Revenue Code. Indeed, in shaping these rules, Treasury and the IRS often equate international taxing norms with U.S. tax law. And thus, the litmus test for creditability of a foreign tax is often, how close is this tax 
in scope and structure to the analogous U.S. income tax. The final regs generally adopt the proposed regs with only minor modifications. Seth, before we delve deeper into the technical aspects of these new rules, can you first give us a general overview of what types of taxes are the government targeting here and what taxes are possibly not targeted but still at risk? So the one thing that I think is really, really clear is the government is going after destination-based tax systems. DSTs are called out, digital service taxes are called out in the preamble as a clear impetus for the adoption of these rules. And pretty much all the DSTs we've seen around the world are indeed destination-based systems. They also mention explicitly, you know, the possibility of a tax on other kinds of services, not just digital services, based on the location of the service recipient and tell us those are not going to be creditable taxes. They discuss royalties and there it's sort of destination-based, source-based and destination-based get a little bit fuzzy there, but we are told in those rules that source must be measured by where the property is used and not just the identity of the payor. So there's 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 a theme here. Destination-based taxes are bad. Other taxes that I think we know are bad, either structurally or from examples in the regs that may not be directly destination-based, uh, diverted profit taxes, such as in the UK, the, the scope of those taxes is a little bit uncertain, doesn't always correspond precisely with destination basis, but there's a big overlap. And furthermore, the UK was very clear when they adopted the DPT that they didn't view it as an income tax. They 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 said that as a way to make the argument it would remain something they could impose despite their relatively widespread double tax treaty network that would not otherwise have permitted it. So they they affirmatively, the UK said these were not income taxes. Also, Non-resident capital gains taxes are pretty clearly caught here. If a resident of country X sells shares of a corporation formed in country Y, a tax imposed on the basis that that's where the company was formed is not going to generally be creditable. They create an exception, as Gary said, looking at U.S.-based principles for things that look like our FERPTA regimes. Those would be fine if, if the company in question holds primarily country-wide real estate, we can tax the country X resident, but we can't do it just because it's a country-wide corporation. They also acknowledge that the Puerto Rican manufacturing excise tax does not meet the requirements of these regulations. They give a little bit of transition relief there, obviously because of the very special role that Puerto Rico plays vis-a-vis the United States and because they had previously explicitly blessed that regime. So it, it was a relatively narrow exception to a, what is otherwise a pretty aggressive effective date of basically 1-1-2022. Then there are some requirements that are a little bit harder to know where they hit. We, we know that you have to allow cost recovery for major categories of costs, but we don't know exactly how much deduction disallowance might trip you into being non-creditable. Similarly, we are told that we can respect the foreign country's characterization of a transaction other than in some very specific circumstances, and that their source rules must generally correspond to U.S. source rules. 
but we don't know when certain deviations might be acceptable and when they might not be. Now, turning to some of the more technical components, undoubtedly the most controversial element of the proposed regs was the introduction of the jurisdictional nexus requirement. The final regs have retained this requirement, though renaming it the attribution requirement. Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about the attribution requirement? Sure. So the attribution requirement is really kind of revolutionizes how we think about the credibility of taxes. Prior to these regulations going final, it was enough that if taxpayer by and large paid foreign income tax or withholding tax on payments that were caught within the foreign tax net of that jurisdiction, they would be creditable as long as they ran the rest of the traps in the 901 regs. So the finalization of the attribution requirement introduces an entirely new prong into the analysis. And the the question that the attribution requirement is seeking to answer is, do we think this is income that the foreign jurisdiction should have within its tax net, or do we think they're overreaching? And the regulations answer that question by looking at essentially how the U.S. taxes people on income earned in a way that is connected with the U.S., And so, like the U.S. system, we distinguish between taxes paid on residents and non-residents. So, for non-residents, the three ways to satisfy attribution also look very much like the way the U.S. taxes non-residents. So, the first is looking at if you have something like a permanent establishment. That's called activities-based nexus. And the fundamental question there is, is the taxpayer doing business within the country in a way that would generally comport with what we view as having a trader business in the U.S.? And if so, income that is reasonably connected with the taxpayer's activities in that country, a tax imposed on them would satisfy the activities-based nexus requirement. The second way in which a foreign tax may satisfy the attribution requirement is called source-based nexus. And that test looks a lot like the Internal Revenue Code Section 871 and 881, where withholding tax or other taxes may be levied on income that we view as U.S. source. And here, it's permissible for the foreign country to tax income if that type of income, as characterized under foreign law, subject to an important exception, is sourced in a way that comports with the U.S. sourcing rules. So if interest is paid, would that payment of interest be sourced based on the residence of the borrower? The general premise we have here is that we only look at whether or not the income is sourced in a way consistent with U.S. sourcing rules after the foreign law has told us how they characterize the transaction. There's an important deviation here taxpayers should be aware of, and that is that a sale of copyrighted articles must be treated as a sale of tangible property under the foreign law. We're not going to defer to a foreign jurisdiction's characterization of that income. The third way in which the attribution can be satisfied for non-residents is called the property-based nexus prong. And here, if, if it's stock that's being sold, like Seth, generally the requirement is only going to be met if it's a real property type holding company, a tax administered under a FERPTA-esque regime. For other property, including partnership interests, you can meet the property-based nexus requirement as long as that property is a part of a taxable presence the taxpayer has in a foreign jurisdiction. So property that you would think of as being used in whatever activities the taxpayer is conducting in that jurisdiction that give rise to a taxable presence. 
Those are our three attribution prongs for non-resident taxes. For resident taxes, we do allow the foreign jurisdictions to tax on worldwide income, so just like the U.S. The biggest hook there is that when income is attributed to specific entities, so the foreign taxpayer or its subsidiaries, the arm's length principle must be used to so attribute that income. So again, no destination-based criteria and no imputation from affiliates in other countries. Let's focus on the attribution requirement for non-resident persons, particularly with respect to the sourcing. Let's use an example, withholding tax on services. How would we determine if such a withholding tax satisfies the attribution requirement and it thus is a creditable tax? Whenever foreign tax is imposed on a gross payment made from within a foreign jurisdiction, I think the most natural attribution requirement for the taxpayer to look at would start off with source-based nexus. That is, is the withholding tax imposed on a payment that is sourced by the foreign country in the way the U.S. would source the income? So where you're talking about a withholding tax on services that the foreign country categorizes as services, then you'd be looking to see whether or not those services were performed within that country, and if so, you would generally expect to meet source-based nexus. If you don't satisfy source-based nexus, then your only other bet for a non-resident to satisfy attribution would be under the activities-based test. So were the services payments received in connection with the trader business conducted by that non-residents within the foreign country? Seth, isn't the government in imposing the attribution requirement effectively telling the world that they need to adopt something like the U.S. tax system or risk subjecting U.S. multinationals doing business in their countries to double tax? And what does reasonably similar to U.S. sourcing rules mean in this context? So on the first point, I think for better or for worse, the answer seems to be pretty much yeah. They're saying your rules need to look something like the U.S. tax system or there's an issue. The devil is, of course, in the details. What does something like, what does reasonably similar mean? They give us a few bright line rules. So, for example, we are told sales of copyrighted articles have to be treated as sales. And so you can't impose tax. Again, that whole destination-based thing can't impose tax on a sale of a copyrighted article, even intangible, you know, electronically delivered stuff. You can't do that on a destination basis. There's a there's a theme we get there. As, as to other issues like finding the difference between a royalty and a service, because again, we're told that a service has to be sourced where it's performed, broadly speaking, consistent with U.S. principles, whereas royalties are where the property is used. There is apparently some room to differ from the U.S. view of whether something is a royalty or a service. And so we could get to a different source answer as to a given transaction if the U.S. thinks it's a service and the foreign jurisdiction thinks it's a royalty. And we'd get different sourcing, but nevertheless, the tax, it appears, would remain creditable. So we know there's also some room for differences. How extensive can those differences be? When do you cross the line 
from you know reasonably similar to totally dissimilar and non-creditable? I think we don't know yet. I'm not sure, honestly, we're ever going to know because the government certainly does not seem to be in the business of answering these questions for us. They've put the issue of is a particular tax creditable on the no rule list. We can't figure it out ourselves and the government isn't going to tell us. Okay. Uh, how about taxes on residents? Let's say your CFC pays local country tax based on its country of residency. Kevin, that seems straightforward, right? Not so much, actually. So I think there are two issues you have to work through when you're trying to decide if a resident income tax is creditable. The first one is, like the U.S., you can tax your residents on their worldwide income, but income and deductions have to be allocated between the taxpayers in a way that comports with the arm's length standard. So if you're in a country where you're talking about an income tax that by and large is consistent with the arm's length standard, absent some major deviation from that, you might expect the income tax to satisfy that prong. But so that's that's the first prong in the analysis is figuring out if you're talking about an income tax system that generally aligns with the arm's length principle. The next tricky part of the analysis is in respect of the net gain requirement. And the net gain requirement broadly consists of a realization requirement. That is, is the taxpayer being taxed on income that it receives within a realization event or like a deemed realization event under U.S. tax principles? So a CFC deemed dividend like or deemed inclusion tax or a mark-to-market tax. The next one is that the tax must be imposed on actual gross receipts that's just because the U.S. doesn't want government taxing the taxpayer on an amount that exceeds the actual fair value of gross receipts, because if so, additional foreign tax would be paid that could be viewed as the U.S. subsidizing that foreign fisc if we grant a credit. But a lot of the action is really in the third prong of the net gain requirement. That is the cost recovery requirement. And the game-changing part of the regulation here is that, as finalized, the cost recovery requirement requires a list of expenses be deductible per se. So things like interest, service payments, royalties, if those are not fully deductible in the foreign country, then you have a big problem under these new regulations, unless a portion of the deductions is disallowed under a rule that's similar to like a U.S disallowance or deferral deduction rule. And we're given as examples, things like 163J. So a foreign tax system that disallows a portion of the taxpayer's interest based on something like 163J, so a disallowance based on net income of the taxpayer, that might be okay. But in a lot of cases, disallowed deductions could make the foreign country's income taxes non-creditable in whole. And I just want to stress the in whole because we're not looking when we make this determination whether in respect of a single taxpayer these requirements are met. They must be, by the terms of the tax law, met with respect to anyone that would be subject to tax under that income tax regime. So the application of a rule that denies cost recovery in respect of other taxpayers, one that you don't have to bear because you're not within that fact pattern, could still disallow your own foreign taxes. That's a great point, Kevin. And I would also add, uh, under these final regs, it's not enough to say it usually gets to net income. It gets to net income 99% of the time. It really has to satisfy these requirements on its face and not just in practice. So, 
these are just regs and not laws. They certainly cannot override our treaties with other countries. Seth, how does our treaty network affect the determination of whether a foreign tax is creditable? Well, every tax treaty to which the United States is a party, or maybe it's just almost every, but I think it's every treaty, explicitly states that certain taxes imposed by the United States as to residents of the foreign country or the foreign country as to residents of the United States is eligible for some form of double tax relief. After all, that's what tax treaties are primarily about. In the case of U.S. residents, the treaties are generally quite explicit that a credit must be granted to a U.S. resident for taxes imposed on that U.S. resident in accordance with the treaty. The regs recognize this fact indeed and say that if you are a U.S. person paying a tax in a manner permitted by a treaty and they add you are relying on that treaty, then the tax is creditable under 901, notwithstanding that it might not satisfy all of the requirements we've been discussing. What's less clear is the treatment of CFCs, or at least I think it's less clear. I I think the regs are staking out a position. I'm just not completely sure that's how a court would come out. The regs are very clear, as I said, that this treaty entitlement applies to U.S. residents. They go on to tell you, and this is unsurprising, that a CFC paying tax to a foreign jurisdiction, the existence of a treaty between the CFC's country of residence and the country imposing the tax is not going to make the tax per se creditable. The only thing it might do is cause us to reevaluate the foreign tax regime as amended by the treaty in question. So that if, for example, the taxing jurisdiction generally taxes all non-resident gains on sales of stock, but some other third country negotiated a treaty that looks kind of like a perpetual regime in the U.S. and says the tax can only be imposed on companies whose primary assets are real estate, the non-resident capital gain statute has been amended by the third country treaty, and now it looks more like the U.S. tax law, and so it's creditable. But it's creditable because it looks like the U.S. tax, not because of the third country treaty. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about BEPS 2.0. In late December of last year, the European Union released a draft directive for implementing the so-called GLOBE rules of Pillar 2. These rules would require a top-up tax be paid with respect to low-taxed income in a group by other members of such group. This top-up tax is allocated between members of the group under one of two mechanisms, the poorly named Income Inclusion Rule, or IIR, and the even more poorly named Undertax Payments Rule, or UTPR. The IIR is the primary mechanism and allocates the top-up tax to the ultimate parent, or if the ultimate parent jurisdiction has not adopted a qualified IIR to the intermediate parent. If neither the ultimate parent nor the intermediate parent has adopted a qualified IIR, the UTPR would apply to allocate the top-up tax to other members of the group in proportion to the number of their employees and value of their tangible assets. If the Build Back Better Act, the BBBA, is not passed, 
certainly increases the possibility that guilty will not be deemed a qualified IIR, given its obvious disconformities with the GLOBE rules, in particular as regards the rate, 10.5% for guilty versus 15% for pillar two, and the manner of computation, blended versus country by country. Seth, have you given any thought to the creditability in the U.S. of top-up taxes paid by CFCs under the IAR or UTPR? And how worried should U.S. companies be if guilty is not deemed a qualified IAR? Yeah, there's a there's a lot in there. So as you point out, the IAR is a little bit of a strange beast because we're told it's an inclusion regime, and yet at the end of the day, it sort of just says pay a dollar amount of tax, not include an amount in income. Nevertheless, operationally, an IIR works a lot like the U.S. CFC regimes, you know, guilty, sub F, what have you, that, that, you know, income from a lower tier subsidiary hopscotches all the way up to the top to the ultimate parent or the U.S. cases to the U.S., whether that's ultimate or not, but income can hopscotch and you pay tax on it. And so it has a lot in common with our sub F rules or other CFC regimes. And these regulations we just got actually contain rules that tell us how to allocate foreign taxes paid under a foreign CFC regime under 861-20. Against that backdrop, it does seem relatively likely that an IIR could and probably would be creditable, but it's no sure thing. On the other hand, the UTPR with allocation keys that do not conform with the arm's length standard, that do not necessarily reflect any connection to the particular dollar amount of income being subjected to tax don't line up at all well with the attribution requirements under the final regs. And so it seems very unlikely that a UTPR would be creditable under these regs as drafted. What that tells us about what U.S. multinationals ought to be thinking about these rules is a little bit still uncertain. We have yet to see an IIR, let alone a UTPR, adopted by any other country. I think there's uncertainty itself if a U.S. multinational is subjecting income to guilty, whether that guilty tax might operate as not literally a credit, but an amount taken into account in determining the IIR or UTPR consequences under the GLOBE rules. So while I think there's reason to be concerned that we don't know every tax that would be paid would be creditable, that is definitely a reason for concern, until we get a bit more certainty both on the treatment of guilty under the GLOBE rules and then the treatment of the GLOBE taxes under the guilty rules, all we can do is monitor be mindful that there's a risk of pretty bad answers, but I don't think we need to hit the panic button just yet. Thank you, Seth, and thank you, Kevin, for joining me today and sharing your valuable insights on the final foreign tax credit regulations. This wraps up our exploration of these regulations for now. Please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed 
on the latest developments in U.S. international attacks. Until our next episode, take care. Thank you.